Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canal. And as investors, we invest because we want to make money. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We also recognize as investors that in order to make that money or get that growth on our portfolio, there is a degree of uncertainty and risk that we have to accept. That's a pretty normal trade-off that I think most people would say is fair. But when that uncertainty and that risk doesn't seem to be being rewarded, it's only natural to question our investment strategy. And if you look at investments and all the different investments you can make over the past several years, called the past decade, it's very clear that certain international investments have not performed that well. When we look at the risk and the uncertainty we're accepting with those types of investments, we look at them and say, where's the corresponding return? And they seem to be underperforming other parts of the market. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about that. And is it time to give up on international investing? How should we view international investing in the context of our portfolio and really set some steps for how to view this in the proper light? Now, before we do so, I wanted to give a quick shout out for this review. I want to do a review of the week. And this one comes from David JMZ is the username. And David says, outstanding content, really great content, concise and to the point and balanced, Also short enough and focused, I can go back easily and make notes since I don't have the filler of some shows. Great pacing and great job. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. And if you're listening and wouldn't mind leaving a review, it helps more people get excited to listen or catches more people's attention as they're scrolling. So please leave a review. And if you have not already done so, please make sure to check us out on YouTube under Root Financial Partners. A lot of this content is being taken to YouTube as well, as well as other information too. All right, so back to the episode. Let's talk about international investing. Should we do it? Shouldn't we do it? The data, the returns, they don't seem to have been there. So what do we do with this information going forward? Well, let's look at the last decade. So really from 2010 to 2020, let's look at information there to frame this to see what we should do going forward. Well, from 2010 to 2020, so January 1st, 2010, until December 31st, really of 2019, the S&P 500 it averaged a growth rate of 13.55% per year. So when you average a 13.5% growth rate per year, that led to a total return of over 256% over the course of the decade, meaning $100,000 invested in the S&P 500 on January 1st of 2010, it grew to $356,000, over $356,000 by the end of the decade. That is growth alone. So take out the principle there. That's growth of over a quarter million dollars on the initial $100,000 that was invested at the very beginning. So that's been a great experience. And a lot of people have seen this and they've then compared it to international investing. Now, while the S&P 500 measures big and medium-sized companies in the U.S., we have to look at an index that measures international investments. And there's a whole bunch of indices that do this, but I'm looking at the MSCI EFI index. EFI stands for its EAFE, Europe, Australasia, and the Far East. And it's going to track large and mid-sized companies, very much like the S&P 500 does, but over a whole bunch of international developed markets. These could be the UK, Canada, Australia, Germany, France, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this index over that same time period from 2010 to 2020, it had an average annualized return of five and a half percent per year. 
Now that 5.5% annualized over a decade led to a total return of just under 71%, meaning $100,000 invested led to about $70,800 of growth, whereas $100,000 invested in the S&P 500, that led to over $256,000 of growth. So this naturally just asks the question, why would we own this? Why would we own an underperforming asset class when right here in our own backyard, we could just own the S&P 500 and call it a day? Well, first things first, if we knew that the next 10 years or next 20 years or next 30 years, were going to look exactly the same as the last 10 years, I would be the first person to say, give up on that diversification. Absolutely do not own international investments. There'd be no reason to when we could simply own the S&P 500 and outperform by a significant margin. The challenge, though, of course, is we cannot predict what the next 10 years are going to hold or the next 20 years and beyond are going to hold. So if we knew that this was going to continue, this would be very easy. Investing would be very easy. Investing is not easy. And investing is not easy because there is no way to take the last year or five years or even 10 years of data and make investment policy out of that. So let's take a look at this because one of the biggest challenges of successful investing is maintaining the right perspective. So let's look at a little more long-term perspective and see what that data shows us. Number one, let's start with this. Let's start with understanding what percentage of the global stock market is represented by the companies in the S&P 500 or even just in the United States. If the S&P 500 is just big companies and some medium companies, look at all stocks in the United States and add up the market capitalization. So the total value of all stocks in the United States and then add up the value of all stocks across the world the U.S. and beyond. Well, when you do that, as of the end of 2020, the U.S. represented about 57% of the total global stock market capitalization. In other words, over half, a little over half of all the value of all the global stock market was here in the U.S. So what does that tell us? It tells us the U.S. stock market should absolutely be a very big portion of a well-diversified portfolio because it makes up a very big portion of the overall global stock market as a whole. And to some extent, you may want this to direct your investment allocation. Unless you're trying to play strategic bets on what company or what country I should say is going to outperform next, if you're just trying to capture performance where it happens, then understanding this should somewhat dictate or at least somewhat direct how much you allocate to different parts of the world in terms of the stock investing you're doing there. Now, for comparison, if we just look at how that compares to other countries, here's some other top countries around the world. Top just meaning make up a bigger portion of the stock market as a whole. The United Kingdom, it makes up 4% of the global stock market. Canada makes up 3% of the global stock market. Japan makes up 7%. China makes up 5%. Germany makes up 2%. France makes up 3%. So you can start to see the US does really dominate in terms of the total market capitalization held here versus other countries. But if all you did was invest here, well, there's almost half of all investment opportunities, really more than half of all investment opportunities that you're missing out on. And I say more than half because when I'm saying investment opportunity, I'm just talking about individual stocks you can invest in or individual companies you can invest in. Well, more than 50% of those are international. Now, for some perspective, and by the way, all these numbers as of the end of 2020, so I'm recording this in 2021, there's of course been some natural shifting in some of these numbers, but as of the end of 2020, the total size of all French public companies, and I'm just using them as an example, if you add together all of them, and there's 318 of them, the value of all those companies put together was $1.86 trillion, which is absolutely a lot of money. 
Well, Apple itself at that time was worth $2.25 trillion. So Apple itself was worth more than the, all the collective French companies put together. It was worth more than all the collective German companies put together or Canadian companies put together. So as you can see, there's a lot of value here in the US, not just in terms of value from their great companies standpoint, but value from the standpoint of if you just look at the relative size, the US should probably make up the core of a lot of people's portfolios, especially people who are here in the US living in the U.S., spending U.S. currency, there's some extra benefits of having U.S. investments when this is your home country and your home currency. So looking at that, yes, you want to own the U.S., but you also do want to make sure you're not giving up on opportunities elsewhere because there is still a lot of opportunity out there when you look outside of the U.S. borders. Now, number two, a second reason, outside just looking at what percentage of the global stock market is in the U.S., a second consideration is consider the last decade. So the, the numbers I gave at the beginning of this podcast of looking at the last decade from 2010 to 2020, the US absolutely smoked international investments. And it's causing a lot of people to say, why on earth would we even own these international investments? I've been told it helps to diversify, but all it seems to be doing is holding my performance back. Why should we keep going? Well, I'm not going to tell you whether you should keep going or not, or how you should allocate your portfolio, but maybe these numbers will help to give some perspective. If we look at the decade prior to that, so from 2010 to 2020, the international markets handily beat the U.S. market. But from 2020 to 2010, the story was a whole lot different. And in fact, if you look at the S&P 500's total return over that time period, and keep in mind, the total return from 2010 to 2020 was 256%, over 256%, which is a lot of money it made for a lot of people. Well, the total return of the S&P 500 the decade before that was actually negative 9.1%. Meaning, had you invested all of your money in the S&P 500 on January 1st of 2000, and you ignored your statements, you ignored the news, you ignored the ups and downs, you said, you know what, I'm just going to put this money here just because it's going to be so fun to be surprised by how much money I have at the end of this decade. Well, had you put your money in, had you put $100,000 into the S&P 500, you had about $91,000 left 10 years later, meaning inflation has gone up. The cost of living has gone up. You're probably closer to needing that money in your portfolio or your retirement goals. You're closer to that, but your investment value has gone down. Well, that's just if you own the S&P 500. If we look at the MSCI World Index, so this is just looking at the World XUS, so not counting for US investments, the World Index, it averaged a total return of 17.5% over that decade. So still nothing super exciting, but at least kept you in the game. Now, if you recall from other episodes where we've talked about investing and talking about you could just go own the whole market, or you could also look for those aspects of the market that do tend to outperform over time things like value companies, things like small companies, look at how those did. Well, if international investing averaged 17.5% over the decade, if you look at international, the international value index, it averaged 49% over that decade. If you look at the international small cap index, it averaged 94% over that decade, a total return of 94%, not an annual return. If you look at emerging markets, so not international developed markets like the UK or France or Germany or New Zealand, like I was using the previous example, but emerging markets, so Brazil, Colombia, China, India, they averaged 154% total return during that decade. And emerging markets value 
averaged almost 213% total return during that decade. Now, here's the fascinating thing. The same media outlets, the same headlines are telling you today, stay away from international investing. Just buy the S&P 500 and call it a day. Why would you ever invest internationally? There's so many problems going on. Well, those are the same exact headlines that at the end of 2010 were saying international is where all the smart money is. People are leaving the U.S. and with their investment dollars in buying international companies. And here's why international superior to U.S. investments or domestic investments. So it's that headline that just totally flipped. And unfortunately, it has flipped at all the wrong times. Now, this is absolutely not a prediction of saying what's going to come next. But when you look at the 2000 decade compared to the 2010 decade, you can start to see how that diversification could be so helpful. Whereas if you were all in the S&P 500 for the 2000s, you had a very lousy decade followed by a very good decade. If you were just international investments during the 2000s, you had not a great decade. It wasn't as bad as the S&P 500 was, but you had a relatively good decade followed by a relatively bad decade. So what you start to see in investing is there is a reversion to the mean. What has gone up will come down. What's gone down will go up, assuming you're properly diversified and owning the right things. But that is another consideration as you're looking at why U.S., well, not every single decade is going to be like the most recent decade that we just came out of last year. All right. Now, a third consideration that I would encourage you to look at when making this decision for yourself is so often when we talk about investing, it's okay. Do I invest internationally or in the U.S. or what percentage international and what percentage U.S.? And it seems like a very binary decision. It's almost as if there's two countries. There's the the country of the United States of America, and then there's the country of international. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And this is harder because we invest in the U.S. We know exactly what stocks are in this, what that market is. We've all heard of Apple and Google and Tesla and the different companies that we buy a lot of our goods and services from. But internationally, it sometimes just seems like this vague black hole. We don't really know what's going on. And all we hear is this news that it's underperforming the U.S. Well, here's the thing. When we invest in an international fund, sometimes we'll own a single fund that might own 20 to 50 different countries. So it makes it seem like international is just this one thing. But really within that fund, there's a whole bunch. And there are 23 different international developed markets that we can invest in. There's also international markets that aren't considered developed markets. They're considered emerging markets. And there are 27 different international emerging markets that we can invest in. So just for some examples, if you look at international developed markets, these are countries like Denmark, Netherlands, Sweden, Finland, New Zealand, Ireland, Japan, Portugal, Switzerland. The U.S. is also going to be considered a developed market. But these are the international ones. Germany, Australia, Hong Kong, Canada, France, Italy, Norway, Austria, Spain, Singapore, Belgium, U.K. Those are all international investments. We kind of have a tendency just to group together on the emerging market side. So international emerging markets, you have Russia and Korea and Colombia and Peru and Mexico and Taiwan, Thailand, Malaysia, Czech Republic, Chile, Indonesia, Hungary, Brazil, South Africa, Philippines, India, China, Poland, Turkey, Egypt. Now you do not need to keep all those straight. It's just a way of saying when you actually unpack what's going on in international investing, you have a tendency to see it's not just the US and then one other country, it's the US in a whole bunch of different countries. And here's the interesting thing. Over the past 20 years, you know, as much as we've been mentioning that the U.S. has outpaced international, has outperformed international over the past 10 years, over the last 20 years, if you look at all those countries I just listed and look at their stock market, the United States has never once been the top performer across all these countries. 
So we know that the United States as a whole has outperformed international as a whole, but United States, if you line out each individual country you can invest in, has never once been the top performer. In fact, if you take out the emerging markets, and if you were just to look at the global developed markets, which the U.S. has won, the U.S. has only held the top spot once, and that was in 2014, when it returned 12.7%. And the closest next market, or the runner-up, if you're going to compare them, was New Zealand, which returned 7.3%. And just for comparison, the worst developed market that year was Portugal, which had a return of negative 38%. So the last 10 years, the U.S. has been close to the top. And if you're going to itemize the performance of each individual country, but it really hasn't been the top in any but one year. So keep that in mind that a lot of the best performance that's happening on a yearly basis isn't actually happening here in the U.S., It's just when we compare the U.S. to all these countries as a whole, that's where the relative outperformance has been the past 10 years. Now, if you look the 10 years below that or before that from 2000 to 2010, that's where the U.S. was close to the bottom in most years compared to a lot of these countries. Yeah, I'll look at a few years specifically just to shed some light on this. But in 2001, the United States stock market was down 12 percent. Well, the best international developed market that year was New Zealand, which was up 8.4 percent. And Russia was the top performing emerging market, which was up 56%. Well, the next year, after losing 12%, the U.S. market was then down 23%. Well, the top performing international developed market that year, once again, New Zealand, it was up 24%. The best performing emerging market that year was the Czech Republic, which was up 44%. Now, in 2005, even when the U.S. had a positive year, it was up 5%. Well, the top performing developed market that year was Canada, which was up 28%, but the top performing emerging market that year was Egypt, which was up a whopping 162%, followed by Colombia, which was up 107%. So as you see, when we stop looking at it as US versus international, but US is one of about 50 different markets we can invest in, then you can start to see how difficult it is to predict the winner year in and year out. And then finally, the fourth consideration I would look at when it comes to investing internationally is just diversification. Let's say, for example, that we knew the U.S. markets, and I'm going to group them all together, and international markets would have the same exact performance over time going forward. Let's say they both return 10% per year on average. 10% is about what the U.S. markets have averaged historically. Well, if you're working and you're in your working years and you're accumulating and you're not taking any money from your portfolio, all you care about is the average return. You could be maybe a little bit more justified in saying, well, you know what? I'm just going to own U.S. markets because I don't care if my performance comes from U.S. or international, some combination of the two. If it's the same return, I'm just going to go ahead and own the U.S., the stocks that I care about or the stocks that I know, I should say. That's fine. If you get the same exact return, then it maybe doesn't matter as much. I'm going to take out the benefits of rebalancing for a second, but you're probably going to end up with about the same portfolio balance if those two markets return the exact same. Here's the thing, though. In retirement, this is a completely different story. In retirement, it's not your average return that you care about. You've probably heard of sequence of return risk. It's do you have an asset class that's gone up in value that you can take your income from every year? So retirement's a completely different story. While you're working, you could afford to go 10 years and have a negative 9% total return in the stock portion of your portfolio like the S&P 500 generated in the 2000s. If you're retired, though, and you're losing 9% over the course of 10 years, and on top of losing 9% in the investment value, you're also taking withdrawals at 4 to 5% per year, it's not too difficult to see 
how your portfolio will likely run out of money before you run out of living. So that's where you need to be diversified because you need to make sure that you have different investments, some of which are going to go through long periods of time where they underperform. Like international has in the last 10 years, like US has in the year before that or the decade before that. But do you have some investment that is going up in value that will be able to generate income for you so that you can go do the things you love? You can spend your time traveling and volunteering and time with family and and doing the things that really excite you in retirement as opposed to worrying about when is this negative return going to reverse? When are things going to start getting better? If you have a portfolio that's properly engineered and diversified to give you income regardless of what's happening in the market or at least minimize the effects of the market, it's just going to lead to a much more comfortable, much more secure retirement than you would if you were totally dependent upon one aspect of the market. So that is it for today. Again, I just want to point out things to consider. Of International has lagged. There's no question about it. And as I said at the beginning, if we knew that that was going to continue the next 10 years, why would we own international investments? There simply wouldn't be any reason to. But when we expand our perspective and don't look at just the last five to 10 years, but look at the last 20 plus years, what we start to see is that tells a different story. And the international investing absolutely can play an important role in building out the best possible portfolio for yourself. So that is it. Thank you for listening. Again, check us out on YouTube. It's under the company name, Root Financial Partners, and I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.